Revelation chapter 14. And before we start reading, um, I want us to kind of just do a little uh, review and reminder of what we've covered. Because the key to understanding a lot of what we see in the book of Revelation is you got to try to get a look at the big picture. And one of the things that I've noticed in studying for this is I think one of the mistakes that people make, especially, you know, obviously in the pre, in, you know, mainly in the pre-trib world, when it comes to the book of Revelation, is they like to just cherry pick verses. They like to zero in on one little passage, you know, and then they can just kind of take it wherever they want, and they never actually zoom out and get the big picture of things going on. And it's absolutely necessary that you do that in order to get full context of everything. And that's very important that we do that in this chapter. Okay, So when we get to the end, after we go through all of chapter 14, I'll kind of do this again just with this chapter. But before we do that, I want us to kind of get an understanding and a big picture idea of where we're at in the book of Revelation. So in chapter 1-11, through we saw a very clear progression of events take place. I mean, everything is pretty much chronological order from 1 through 11 and it takes us all the way up to the final battle of the great day of God Almighty when we get through 1 through 11. Then when we get to chapter 12, we see that huge shift in gears where now all of a sudden we're just mostly looking at visions. And in these visions that we're seeing here, these visions are basically more details about some of the events that were briefly mentioned in chapters 1 through 11. So when you get to chapter 12, you have the vision of the birth of Jesus Christ. And then you have, uh, in that vision, you see the devil going after the congregation that Jesus came from. And Jesus came from Israel. And we obviously believe that today we are a part of that. We are a continuation of that church that was in the wilderness. Okay, And so, uh, that's chapter 12. When we get to chapter 13, we have a vision of the Antichrist and his kingdom that brings persecution to the people of God. Okay? Chapter 12, he, it mentions how that, you know, the, the devil's gonna go after the remnant of her seed. And then in chapter 13, we get a more detailed look at that. We see the rise of the Antichrist. We see the rise of the, uh, the vision of the false prophet. We see how it's mentioned that they are going to implement the mark of the beast. That is a direct attack on the people of God. And so, uh, and that covers chapter 13. It also covers the abomination of desolation. So now when we're in chapter 14, what we're looking at here are several visions. There's several different things that are all mentioned here in chapter 14. And we're basically getting a look to summarize this chapter as it's a uh, it's visions showing how God is going to deal with those who persecuted His people and then how God is going to deliver His people. That's what we're seeing here in chapter 14. So there's going to be some things that are repeated in here that we've covered in previous weeks because we're kind of seeing these events again here in chapter 14. And it starts off with the 144,000. And we were introduced to the 144,000 in uh, Revelation chapter 7, and we're seeing them again in chapter 14. We saw the rapture in chapter 7. We're going to see the rapture again in chapter 14. And so let's go ahead and take a look at the 144,000. And you know, it, it's amazing some of the things that just get stuck in your head, you know, from your days of being pre trib. 
And I don't even know if this is a, a pre-trib thing that we got brainwashed with or a Jehovah's Witness thing. But have you, you, know, have you ever heard anybody refer to the 144,000 as 144,000 witnesses? Do you know it never calls them witnesses? That, that's not in chapter 7. It's not in 14. They're not called witnesses. They're called servants. And so I, you know, I, I think they probably will witness. I mean, if they're servants of Christ, it makes sense that they would witness for Him. But the Bible doesn't call them that. You say, now why does that even matter then? Well, because it just shows we don't, people are not getting their terminology from the Bible. So who started that? Who started calling them that? Was it the JWs? You know, was it just one of these pre-tribbers? You know, trying to make it all about the Jews? I don't know. But you know what? One of the things that got me realizing, you know, that I was probably taught a lot of stuff wrong is when I realized how much of my terminology had no Bible basis at all, and it was a big wake-up call. And so it's 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 important that we see these things and we call people out on that. When they talk about the 144,000 witnesses, say, can you please show me in the Bible where it calls them witnesses? And it's not a huge deal that it's not there, but at the same time, when all of a sudden they can't do it, when they're sure it's there. I, I read through both those chapters. I went through it several times. Like It never, it never calls them witnesses. It never says they witness. So, where, why, where do we get off calling them that? I don't know. I don't know where that came from. You know, that's, I'll have to find that out. But anyway, let's go ahead and read verse 1. It says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him in 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, some of the stuff I covered before when we talked about the 144,000, but I want to repeat it too just in case uh, someone did not hear that because this is a big question. When you talk about you know, Israel, when you talk about end times, one of the things that people always say is, what about the 144,000? And what I always like to ask those people is, what about the 144,000? They just say, what about the 144,000? And then, you know, well, and basically what they're saying is God's not done with Israel. That's, that's what they're saying. But here's just a few things to point out whenever people want to say, what about the 144,000? First off, we need to ask ourselves, what are they doing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, if they want to say that this is earthly Mount Zion, we've got Jesus standing on earth before the wrath of God has even come. Okay? Now, we don't believe that, and the pre-tribbers don't believe that. Okay? But we believe this is talking about the heavenly Mount Zion. Hebrews 12.22 But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So, I believe right here we see the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb in heaven. Okay, And so, that is a very important thing 
there is no doubt here in chapter 14, they are in heaven. Okay? And that brings you to all kinds of things that they have to just assume, <clears throat> even though the Bible does not tell us this. So if you start, if you bring this up to people, they say, well, that's because they were martyred in the tribulation. All 144,000 of them. That's interesting too, because they all get martyred before the mark of the beast has been implemented. That's interesting. You know, they sure didn't, you know, they, they sure didn't last long. You know, the Antichrist was pretty successful there. Um, you know, so that's just one thing that doesn't make sense. Uh, and and uh, notice it says too in verse 3, it says, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne. Okay, so if there's any doubt that they're in heaven, I mean, they are here before the throne of God in heaven. There's no doubt they are in heaven right now. These are they that were redeemed from the earth. Okay, they're not on earth anymore, they are in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? Well, I believe it's because these are people that were from the Old Testament. These are literally 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. These are people too who had a good track record. In their mouth was found no guile. They're virgins. They've got all these wonderful things to say about them. And what's interesting about that too, you can say, well, that, that applies to Jews today. Well, I doubt it because first off, it's clear these people are people who have a history with God. These are people who follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. I mean, this isn't something... These guys didn't have a good track record for just a super short time because think about this, alright? Let's try to cram everything into the three and a half years the pre-tribbers want to cram in there, okay? So here's what the way the pre-tribbers teach it. After we get raptured out, all of a sudden, these 144,000 Jews are going to figure out Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. All of a sudden, they're going to get saved. And in the, during that time of the tribulation, apparently, they're also all going to get killed before you know, even the mark of the beast is implemented. So, you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, how do these guys, you know, how do they get this title so fast of being just such holy, righteous people that follow the Lamb with us wherever we go, that do all these things. Okay? You can only cram so much in three and a half years. I mean, really, three, are we gonna, are we gonna, you know, give somebody all these titles and just all this faithfulness and all these wonderful things for just three and a half years? That's, you know, that's not how God measures faithfulness, alright? It's a lot longer than that, but it just doesn't make sense. It's just desperation when they try to bring up the 144,000. So, uh, you know, the 144,000, you know, it's very clear. They are in heaven here before God's wrath is poured out. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. So right there we see that this is after the 144,000 are mentioned, after the 144,000 are in heaven. It says that the wrath of God has not come yet. So the 144,000, they are clearly in heaven before God has poured His wrath out. Now that creates some more problems too if you're pre-trib because of the fact that, well, what's, what's a verse that proves we're not here for the tribulation? We've not been appointed under wrath. Ask any pre-tribber 
Tribulation equals the wrath of God. Well, when do the 144,000 get you know, saved when they go to heaven? Well, they get saved after the rapture. They get killed during the tribulation. But here, they're already in heaven before God's wrath is part. You've got to take your pick. If these are Jews that get saved during the tribulation, all right, then all of a sudden you've got to realize that the tribulation is not the wrath of God. Because they get they are in heaven before God's wrath is poured out. So you see just the massive amount of problems that comes when you're pre trib. And that is why, too, that is why all these you know dispensational whiteboard ruckmanites have to have these super complicated charts behind them that look like some, you know, advanced calculus equation. That's why they have to. That's what you have to do to make sense. You've got to get people lost in all that insanity, and then just you know make it make your chart look good so you look smart. And at the end of the day, what the people in the pews will do is like, well, I'm lost, but boy, he sure looks like he knows what he's talking about. I'll just listen to him. I'm pre-trip. Okay, that is not what a good teacher does. I might be talking about that a little bit on Sunday night, but a good teacher of the Bible is going to teach things in a way not that will get people just to accept the right position, but it will get them where they understand the right position. They will be fully persuaded. And we don't and I, we don't need to trick people. That's a great thing about the post trib. I don't got to do fancy charts. I don't have to do double talk. I can show plain scripture and it is amazing when you try to match up your typical post-tribber, and I'm not talking about the preachers, I'm talking about people in the pews. You know, you talk to them about end times versus the typical pre-tribber in the pews. Folks, there's no contest. There is no contest. Now, there's preachers out there that can talk a really good game. You know, there are preachers that are just skilled debaters and could, I mean, you know, they could take me to town, all right? I'm not a skilled debater. Okay, you think I would ever want to go up against somebody like Peter Ruckman in a debate? Absolutely not. I wouldn't want to go up against guys like James White in a debate. He'd probably clean my clock. But does that mean he's right? No, but unfortunately the reprobates, they love to debate, aren't they? You know why? Because they're good at it. Because they're full of debate. That's why Tyler Baker's wanting to have a debate right now with you know Brother Jeff Utzler. Because they are, they're full of debate. He's like, I'll eat them alive. Well, yeah, you're full of debate. You're full of debate, and so you're going to be better at a debate. Doesn't make you right. Okay? It just, yeah, there's a lot of sins Tyler Baker would be better at than most of us. And debate's one of them. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's just foolishness. And so, uh, the 144,000, they got nothing, alright? Whenever pre-tribbers say, what about the 144,000? You know what? You, you say right back to them, what about the 144,000? Let's go there. Let's go there. Explain to me what they're doing on Mount Zion before the mark of the beast, before the wrath of God. You explain that to me. And that, you know, they can't do it. Alright, they, they can't do it. There is no explanation. So look at verse 6. It says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth. 
and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now right here is another passage too that of course the Rukmanites have just absolutely butchered. This is the everlasting Gospel. This is one of their three Gospels that they have. The everlasting Gospel. When I was at the Anti-Anderson Conference, right before I had my uh, sit-down with Gip, he had talked about the three Gospels. At Providence Baptist College, he talked about three Gospels and got away with it. He wrote it down on a whiteboard. Wrote down the three Gospels. And he got up and he explained the Gospel. And this is the way he explained it. He was like, look at what it says there in verse 6. You know, it's saying, it's saying having the everlasting Gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. Y'all see the death, burial, and resurrection in there? I'll see the death, burial, and resurrection in there. You know how you're going to have to get saved during this time? You're going to have to fear God. You're going to have to give glory. You're going to have, he's telling you you have to do all these things. And he didn't, this didn't come out of his mouth. He knew better than to say this there. But that's faith plus works. This is what he's trying to teach. So what do we do here when he says everlasting gospel? So at, when I was having my conversation with him, I'm like asking him these questions and he wouldn't answer any of my questions. When I would ask him a question, he would just divert, he would ask me another question. And then whenever I would try to answer the question, he would interrupt me. And so this is one of them he did. You know, I brought up the, you know, his three Gospels. And he was like, so what do you think the everlasting Gospel is? You know, it says right, you know, you mentioned how it says, you know, fear God, give glory to Him, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's like, he's like death, burial, and resurrection is not mentioned in there. I said, it's implied because it's talking about the Gospel. Alright? Not every time when the Bible mentions Gospel, it doesn't need to mention death, burial, and resurrection every time. And when we go out and give the gospel, you know, according to that logic, I might as well be saying, you know, we're giving, you know, good news that, you know, Dairy Queen's giving out discounts. Alright, no, listen, when we say gospel, we're taught, it's not just any good news, it's not just extra good news, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be explained every single time. It doesn't have to go into great detail every single time. And so this angel, when it says he's going preaching the everlasting gospel, right there is the death, burial, and resurrection in the word gospel. It's mentioned, and when it's telling them to, and it's telling the people to fear God and give glory to Him. Well, is it not a fear of God that causes us to call on Him for salvation? Think about that. A lot of people get saved because they're scared of hell. They're scared of standing before a holy God and rightfully so, when we get saved, when we call on the Lord for salvation, it's because we clearly fear God. You know, We're giving glory to Him. We're calling on Him for salvation. We are acknowledging that He is the One that paid for our sins. That He is the One that did it all. When a person gets saved, they're doing all these things. But what do they want to do? Nope. It says everlasting Gospel. Therefore, it's a whole new gospel. And it's like every time, and they're not consistent with it because you know how many things the gospel is called? It's called the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the kingdom, gospel, Paul, Paul said my gospel. You know, I mean, I, I wrote it down one time how many different titles there are for the gospel, and there's a bunch. There's a bunch of titles 
but yet they want to say it's another gospel and that it's a faith plus works and that is a lie out of the pit of hell. No doubt about that. Look at what it says in Matthew 24.13. This is what they like to go to. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. You know, you got to endure to the end to be saved. That's faith plus works. Not you know taking it you know leaving out the context, showing it's a physical salvation. If you endure to the end, you'll be saved by the rapture. You'll be physically saved. But it says, "In this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come." So right there, they'll say you know. They, well, this is what they do too. They'll say the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Sam Gipp does. So they'll say you got the gospel of the kingdom, and then you have, uh, which was what Jesus preached. Then you have the gospel of the grace of God, which is what Paul preached. Then in the tribulation, it's going to go back to the gospel of the kingdom. But then the everlasting gospel is apparently a different one. You know, and none of them can give you a real good explanation. Of what the gospel of the kingdom is, you know, like, can you please explain to me if I'm in the gospel of the kingdom how I would get saved, you know? And then, but same, but then same thing too with the everlasting gospel. The way they say you get saved during that time, he'll tell you how to get saved in the everlasting gospel, and they'll say fear God and give glory to Him. That's what that's what it says. And notice too when it says fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Okay, it's just showing that hey. This payment for sin is about to come. You're going to have to pay for it if you don't call on the Lord for salvation. Alright? All that's even, if anything's changing at all, it's just the eight hey, judgments a little closer now than it was before. It's really close. It's about to happen. So, in reality, nothing has changed. But you know what? Let's just say, let's just say that the everlasting gospel is another gospel. Okay? It says in there, all this is, is a vision. And he's saying there's an angel preaching the everlasting gospel in the whole earth. Alright? And let's just assume it's a different gospel. Well, you know, we have some instructions on what to do if an angel preaches another gospel. What does it say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9? But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have preached, let him be accursed. So if this angel is preaching another gospel, which it's not, but even if it is, alright, let's just go ahead and give him that. Then will we listen to that? Absolutely not. We do not listen. They'll say, well, that was true in this dispensation. At this point, the rapture will have come, so we have entered a new dispensation. Can you please, you know, in this, I would like to see the expiration date on this verse. Show me anything in the Bible. Show me anything in the Bible that when that where Paul's writings have an expiration date. Alright, where does that come from? It comes from their dispensational books. So that is just garbage. Alright, it's absolute garbage. The everlasting gospel is the gospel that we preach today. And every time the Bible says gospel, it doesn't always mention the death, burial, and resurrection every single time. Why? It doesn't need to. That just is the gospel. If I say, you know, I'm I'm going to be coming over to your house with my family, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have to explain every time. I shouldn't have to say, hey, I'm coming over to your house with Cassandra, Tommy, Jason, Abby, Chloe, Ali, Alan, and Kelly. That's just too many words. All right. How about I just say family? But it's like if you don't get specific, 
Well, I don't know what he means by that. He said he's coming over with his family. What does that even mean? You know, let's find something in his writing, in his words, to see if we can't figure out what that is. It's not that complicated. Alright? It's not that complicated. If I'm talking about my family, I'm talking about, you know, the whole crew. Alright? It's just foolish arguments. But anyway, let's move on. Let's look at verse 8. It says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So right here, now we haven't uh, really covered anything with Babylon yet. Alright? But there is a lot to come with Babylon. Remember, chapter 14, it's kind of basically a Summary just showing how God is going to deal with the world and how He's going to deliver His people. And so, one major event that we have covered in previous chapters is the battle of the great day of God Almighty. But something that hasn't been covered yet that is that is going to come later. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this tonight. But that is the destruction of Babylon. That is a major, major thing that is to come. Something that God is going to do. Because Babylon is just dripping with the blood of the martyrs. And they are going to get special... They, are, they will especially be dealt with. Okay, The whole world is going to be judged because of sin. But there is special judgment for those who have killed God's people. And so, right here where this angel is going through saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Okay, Does this mean Babylon has already fallen in this passage? Because you know, according to our timeline and stuff, and really, this chapter isn't giving a timeline. It's just giving visions, basically pronouncing judgment. And so right here, when it's saying Babylon has fallen, is fallen, I don't believe Babylon has fallen yet. But I believe what this is, especially the fact too how it mentions it twice, it's just showing that it's going to happen. Okay, that's that's what it is. It's kind of like earlier when it said, "Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth." Okay, it's pronouncing three woes, but the woes have not happened yet, have they? They happen later. It pronounces the judgment, and whenever the Bible does that too, and you'll see this off in the Bible. We're only going to look at probably one example. Often, when the Bible pronounces judgment, it pronounces it as though it's already happened. It doesn't always do that. Sometimes when the Bible pronounces judgment, it says it in a way like this could happen because many times there's a way to escape judgment if you'll repent. Okay, But we often see examples where it states it like it's already happened. When it does that, it's because there's no turning back on this. There is no repentance. This is going to happen. So that's just kind of a, a something that you'll see whenever you see prophecies in the Bible. Many times, whenever you see the Bible saying it like it's already happened, that just means there's nothing changing the fact this is going to happen. Okay. So the way we see this stated here too, where it says Babylon has fallen, has fallen, it hasn't happened yet, but it's saying it this way because it's going to happen and there is nothing that can stop it from happening. Babylon is not going to have a chance to get right or repent or anything like that. It's going to happen. Uh, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, let me just show you one example in the Old Testament of a judgment being pronounced like it's already happened, even though it hasn't happened yet. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, 
in verse 23. This is when Saul loses the kingdom. And it says, for, and notice what Samuel says. It says, For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is his iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Notice that. Notice how Samuel called him rejected. He said, You're rejected. That's what reprobate means. Rejected. Notice how after Samuel tells him, You've been rejected. Notice how Saul's confessing his sins. He's like, hey, I've sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Looks like he's trying to get right here. Looks like he's trying to repent. But look, Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Now, I believe Saul was a saved man. But I do believe that Saul was reprobate in the sense of him ever the kingdom staying in his line. Okay? And that he's, he's reprobate as far as that is concerned. In other words, he has lost his chance. There is no turning back. Because notice how it keeps saying rejected from being king. He's not just rejected in general. He's not reprobate in general. But he is reprobate in the fact that he will never get the kingdom back. And even though he's saying he's sorry. You know, have your kids ever done that? I said I was sorry. Sorry. You know, after the 14th time I told you not to do that and you just went and you did it anyway, I don't care if you're sorry. You're getting paddled. Alright? And that's basically what's going on here. He's just pushed it too far. And it says, and Samuel turned about to go away, and he laid hold upon the skirt of the mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And the strength, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Now wait a minute. We see earlier, I believe it was in this chapter, where. God repented of making Saul king. But now he's saying God's not a man that he should repent. What he's talking about here is he's saying, I'm not going back on this, is what he's saying. This judgment that I have pronounced on you, I'm not going back on it. I'm not going to repent of this. You know why? Because Saul, you're rejected. And he said, this day, the kingdom's been taken from you. But folks, it was years and years before he actually lost the kingdom, wasn't it? It was years and years later. I mean, David, he hasn't even fought Goliath yet. It was many, many years before he actually did lose the kingdom. But understand, it was pronounced that day and it was there was absolutely nothing Saul could do to change that. Saul repented. Saul tried to get right. Saul asked for forgiveness. But he said, nope, you're rejected. And so he stated it, Samuel stated it like it had already been done. Even though it hadn't been done yet. And there are many examples of that in the Bible. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 14. Babylon's destruction has been pronounced. There's no turning back on it. It is going to happen. They're going down. And that's that's why it's saying it like it's already happened. So, um, you know, look, it was it was many years before Saul lost the kingdom, but 
at the same time, it was the, it was that day because there was no going back. And Romans four seventeen. All right, this is a verse you got to remember. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's what God said to Abraham. I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God called Abraham a father of many nations before he even had any children. Why? Because once God pronounces something like that, you know what He's saying? This is going to happen. And that is why we can say we are saved now. Even though we have a vile, sinful body that's capable of sin and doing terrible things, when we called on the Lord for salvation, we were given the promise of eternal life. We were given the earnest of the Holy Spirit. And because of the fact that God cannot take that away from us, because of the fact that it has been pronounced, that we will be saved and have eternal life, we can say right now, we have eternal life. I have it right now. I'm saved right now. You know why? Because nothing can change that. Absolutely nothing can change that. And so, that's why the Bible can say, behold, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed, but yet, we're saved now. Because when you have the promise, it's as good as having it. And so, we've got it. We've got salvation. So look at verse 9 of chapter 14. So now we got a third angel. Because say we're just seeing all these angels coming through, kind of pronouncing these things. And it says, And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image uh, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, <clears throat> and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time. We've talked about Mark of the Beast a lot. But, let me bring this up again. I want to get this in your head because it's another great verse to throw in the pre-tribber's face. Okay? If you take the mark, you will experience the wrath of God. And look what it says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the Word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Notice those who are beheaded for taking the mark will participate in the first resurrection. They will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Therefore, the mark of the beast comes before the first resurrection. Well, that's not the rapture. 
Okay. All right. You know, I'm I'm sorry, but when when you when they go to that, I mean, you just got to say, sorry, man, you're just stuck and stupid. First resurrection is the rapture. Now, 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 if you rightly divide, it's different. I, I don't know what else you can do. You know, even though the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first, that's not the first resurrection. Really? Where the dead in Christ rise first is not the first resurrection. The first resurrection comes after the dead in Christ rise first? That's what they have to say. Folks, people, the pre-tribbers, they're not even trying to answer this stuff. Okay? They're just running away and that's why they've got to go to the Rucktards. They're the only people that will even try. And the Rucktards will they'll, they'll completely ignore this first. You know, and, you know, and they'll probably just say, you know, they'll go to the whole... Well, the first resurrection's in phases. You know, so the dead in Christ rise first, but then later, that's the first resurrection. You know, you know, you can't even make up the stupidity that they come up with. Just so desperate. But anyway, look at verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat under the sun, uh, sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat in the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat in the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Now let me stop right here because I just listened to a preacher the other day. He was debunking you know, Matthew 24 being the rapture. And he was like, notice what it says in Matthew 24. It says he's going to send his angels for the gathering. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, for the Lord Himself. So when you look at Matthew 24, it's the angels doing the gathering. When you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the Lord Himself. Okay? Not understanding that when it says the Lord Himself, it just means that yeah, it's God Himself coming. Just like if the president came, hey, Donald Trump Himself is coming. You know, it's just showing that hey, He's not sending somebody by Himself. He's coming Himself is what He's saying. It's going to be the Lord Himself that shall descend from heaven with the shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Okay? It's going to be Him that makes the call and He Himself is going to come and we are going to go up and meet Him in the clouds. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that while He Himself is doing all those things, that He can't use His angels to help gather up the elect. He can't do that. All right? But let's just give Him that. All right? Okay, the Lord Himself means it's Jesus that does the gathering. Therefore, all right, we can't necessarily say Matthew 24 is the same rapture. The same guy would deny that this is the rapture in Revelation 14. But yet, look what it says in verse 14. Who is it that's there? It says, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. Who is it that's doing it? Notice this angel that comes tells the Son of Man to reap. So who's doing the reaping here? It's Jesus. Jesus is doing the reaping. Okay, Now, is Jesus going to use a sickle to gather us up? No, this is a vision. This is figuratively speaking. Okay, But you use a sickle when you're going through and you're harvesting things. 
And this is a picture of that. And so, it, right here is a picture of Jesus gathering up His people. That's what, the, that's what the picture is. And it's Jesus doing it. So even this guy who's saying, you know, it's got to be, Mad 24 can't be it because it's Jesus doing it. That same guy would try to deny that this is the rapture, yet who's gathering the people up here in Revelation 14? It's Jesus that's doing it. Once again, pre-trib double talk. Okay, just preach and arguments like that are just stupid too. All right, that difference—that's a stupid argument. I shouldn't even address it, but I address it to show the inconsistency. Because as these people say, they're similar, but they're not the same. You know, here the angels are doing it. Here it's Jesus doing it. Therefore, similar but not the same. Well, this is the same. You know, and so therefore, you know, you've got you've got a problem. You've got a big problem, but they'll ignore it. So um, look at Matthew chapter thirteen. Turn over to Matthew chapter thirteen real quick. Because now, now once again, here's an example of something that's similar but not necessarily the same. All right. Now, often the Bible uses parables to describe something. Sometimes, you know, maybe Matthew or Mark will use a parable to describe something. Or here, in this case, it was Jesus using a parable. And then another person, they might use a different illustration. Okay? We've all, we're all used to illustrations. Preachers give illustrations all the time. They often use different ways to illustrate things. The Bible often uses more than one way to illustrate the same thing. Does it not? Here we see an illustration that is very similar to the one that we see in Revelation 14. Basically, what's going on here? Look what it says in Mark chapter 13, verse 24. It says, But in those days, after the tribulation, um, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see... Uh, I don't think this is what I wanted. Maybe it was Matthew chapter... Oh, it's Matthew. I'll say that. That sounded right because it was in the intense. I was like, that's not what I wanted. Matthew chapter 13. Sorry about that. Verse 24. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servant of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it then hath it tares. And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay? It's a parable. It's an illustration. Here's, the, here's basically what this is talking about. We live in a world now where you got the wheat and the tares together, don't we? But one of these days, there's going to be a separation. One of these days, they're going to be separated. What's going to happen to the tares? They're going to be burned. What's going to be happen to the wheat? It's going to be gathered into His barn or taken into heaven. This is what we see going on in Revelation chapter 14. Basically the same thing. The first vision... You have the Son of Man standing there with the sickle, 
reaping, what is he doing? He's gathering up his harvest. Okay? He's taking us out before he pours his wrath out. The next angel that we're going to see, it's him gathering up. This time, it's used as grapes, not wheat or tares, but basically taking them and putting them in the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Basically, it's the same concept. It's a different parable. It's a different illustration, but teaching the same thing. And so look what it says in verse 18. And another angel came out of the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And we spent quite a bit of time uh, talking about that. I'm not going to go through it again, but in case uh, you weren't here for that, you need no more on that. Joel three is a ref- references this. It calls it the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where that happens. That happens in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, not the Valley of Armageddon. The Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is right outside of Jerusalem. It is in between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. That's where this is going to take place. Not the Megiddo Valley. That is not where it takes place. This is going to happen at the battle of the great day of God Almighty. I forgot what chapter I covered all that in. But see that if you're not sure about that. And Zechariah 14 is another passage that talks about that. But anyway, so a good summary of what chapter 14 is all about is John is showing us visions that represent all the major events that will be taking place after the midst of Daniel's 70th week. Okay, After the midpoint. In chapter 13, we saw the abomination of desolation, didn't we? That is the midpoint. That is a key event for us. That is when we will know for sure. We're in the tribulation. The Antichrist will have been revealed. He's going to be making war with the saints. There's not going to be much time and we're going to be raptured out of here. That was shown in chapter 13. And as soon as chapter 13 gets done, we are now looking at the second half of Daniel's 70th week and it's covering the main events. And the main events are, we see the 144,000 are referenced. We see the rapture in there. We see the battle of the great day of God Almighty. We see the mark of the beast mentioned. We see uh, destruction of Babylon. All the major events are briefly mentioned in here. And then when we get to after chapter 14, what we're seeing and really the rest of the book of Revelation are more detailed events that were just prophesied here in 14. We, it goes deeply into the destruction of Babylon. You know, and it goes into the battle of the great day of God Almighty. It goes into greater detail in all these things. We see a lot more details in the wrath of God. We've got the seven vials of God's wrath. All those things. So basically, chapter 14, it just kind of briefly hits all the main events of the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And then 
the rest the rest of the chapters it's just it going into much greater detail. So it's important that you understand the big picture on that. It'll help you you know kind of get an idea of where we're at, what's going on, and uh, it'll, I, it'll help, help we're supposed to kind of keep our thoughts on track and kind of understand where we're at. So even though we mentioned the battle of the great day of God Almighty, the destruction of Babylon, we're not really there yet in the timeline. But we just know those things are coming. Why? Because the angels came in and they pronounced these things. So these are these are all the things that are coming. And so, anyway, I hope that all made sense and was a help. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for uh, Your Word and revealing these things to us. Dear God, I pray You'll help us to uh, just learn these things, Lord. And as we get into, uh, go through the rest of this book, Lord, help us to just uh, you know, be loyal to Your Word. Help us to never get so stuck in a position that you know we're not able to change on anything, Lord. And I just pray You'll help us to to be humble. And I thank You, Lord, for uh, people's willingness to uh, accept the truth of these things of the post-trib rapture. And I pray You'll help us as we try to uh, warn people about what's to come. It's it's very clear that Your people are not ready for what's coming down the road. And I pray You'll help us to make a difference in this area. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's.